Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guests today are Nebraska Shakespeare's Sarah Lynn Brown, Interim Artistic Director, and Katie Becker-Cologne, Director of Education. For the past 18 years, Sarah Lynn Brown has worked with Nebraska Shakespeare as a director, actor, and educator, and she was recently appointed Interim Artistic Director for the company in 2018. She has acted in and directed numerous shows for Shakespeare on the Green, Shakespeare on Tour, and other companies across America. In 2016, Sarah launched an all-female production program, Juno's Swans, which has produced readings of The Taming of the Shrew, Richard III, and Julius Caesar, and will be presenting All's Well That Ends Well for Shakespeare on the Green in 2019. Most recently, Sarah directed the world premiere of Adaptive Radiation at Denizen Theatre in New Paltz, New York. Moving from Albuquerque, New Mexico, Katie Becker-Cologne joined the Nebraska Shakespeare team in January 2019, having performed in numerous Nebraska Shakespeare productions since 2016. In Albuquerque, Katie was Director of Education and a resident actor for Duke City Repertory Theatre, and created three educational programs for children, adults, and business professionals. In addition to overseeing Shakespeare on Tour, Camp Shakespeare, and the Sonic Contest for Nebraska Shakespeare, Katie has started a weekly video series on YouTube called Any Shakes Ed Talks for Students, Educators, and Shakespeare Nerds, as well as a monthly teen Shakespeare workshop called The Asiders. Katie and Sarah, welcome to the show. So... My first question, why is Shakespeare relevant to today? Oh, Shakespeare. Why is Shakespeare relevant? Well, I think there's a greater question there um, that a lot of people are asking, and I think we ask ourselves this question every day, is, is Shakespeare still relevant? Um, Looking at his plays being written over 450 years ago for an all-male company um, in a very different time, uh, are these plays something that we can still glean something out of, something that we can still learn from? I personally think absolutely. I think actually we can learn more from his plays now than probably his audiences could learn um, when they were being presented when he was writing. There is um, a universality of themes. There is a human connection in his plays that um, expands and grows and uh, um, uh, crosses the time barriers. I don't think that what he was writing in terms of um, humanity and in terms of love and violence can be limited to a time. I believe it is um, uh, all-encompassing. That's not the word I'm thinking of. What's the word I'm thinking of? Like timeless? Yeah, I mean timeless. (laughs) Thanks, Katie. I couldn't think of timeless. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yes, timeless. Absolutely. Good. You take it away. We went to a Shakespeare weekend intensive in Aurora, Nebraska, of all places, Mm -hmm. with Tina Packer, who founded Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts. And she is, she's like the godmother of Shakespeare Mm -hmm. scholarship in America. And hearing her talk about Shakespeare, if I had any question about the work that we were doing, I was assuaged by the fact that Tina Packer, 80 years old, spitfire, was still learning about Shakespeare. And I Mm -hmm. thought that that was so impressive that when I think about the word genius, I think about those artists who every time we access them through our lifetimes, we find something different Mm -hmm. because their work is so nuanced and infinite. I think about Van Gogh. I think about Michelangelo. I think about Shakespeare. Um, and being in this position just for four months, uh, the amount that I have learned makes me realize that it is a very deep, very infinite pool that I will, I'll be swimming inside for the rest of my life. It's amazing. I like that I couldn't think of the word timeless and you used the word assuage. That's just how this interview is going to go. <laughs> when you start We're reading a lot of work. Shakespeare, your vocabulary goes way up. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> Which I think actually is maybe a nice segue to asking about why perhaps so many of us find Shakespeare intimidating. I think that the the fear of appearing stupid or failing in front of other people is pretty universal and that Shakespeare I mean I can think about memories in middle school and high school where the the teacher at the front of the room asked does anybody know what this means and if you raise your hand and say the wrong thing you look like an idiot and so Shakespeare 
can have that big old obstacle course for people to feel stupid. The early modern English that Shakespeare was writing in, 95% of the words that he used, we still use today. He just used them in a different order. And his sentences were much longer than the sentences that we use today in the 21st century. So I get it. But I actually think that's its greatest power in education and whether it's with students or with adults to give someone a piece of text. Well, here's a story. So I taught in a juvenile detention center in Southwest Virginia when I was working at the Barter Theater and uh, I taught creative storytelling and movement. And I was working with 14 through 18 year old young men who were in a program that was built to give them their GED after six months and prevent them from returning to a detention center ever again in their lifetime. So it was GED, it was mental health, it was social skills, it was, a, it was a whole package. And they invited me to come in because they recognized the power of theatrical performance. So I gave them Hamlet. And th- I mean, these are students who were below an eighth grade reading level. Some of them were at like a second or third grade reading level. They had um, things like ADHD and terrible focus problems partly because of the lifestyle that they were living and partly just because that's how they came out of the womb, right? And to give someone like that a piece of text and for them to look at it like it's gibberish and then to dissect it with them and for them not only to understand what's on the page, but to realize that Hamlet has more in common with them than other characters that they were reading or that they were watching on television, like talk about power. So even though it feels inaccessible, when we are able to access it, it's such a confidence builder. It it transforms us both as actors, but also as audience members. Yeah. I think all of those great points. Um, I think there, I think that we do a disservice to Shakespeare when we introduce it the way that we do in school. The fact that we read it Um, In a classroom, the fact that we learn characters and then we take a test about it and then we move on. Shakespeare's work was published after he died. And I would be curious to know if he is disappointed with maybe what has happened with his work, who he was writing it. it. I'm sure he would hate it. (laughs) Um, And so that's one of the things that uh, we've got a, a program that's going into its 14th year, Shakespeare on Tour, taking Shakespeare productions, adapted Shakespeare productions into high schools and middle schools. And these students... One of the very first questions we always get well, was how much of that was Shakespeare? Like how much of the performance was Shakespeare? And it's always 100% Shakespeare. And they're like, well, no, I understood it. It's like, well, yes, because you have the actors to help you with this text that's a little bit different and hits our ear a little bit differently. And even when Shakespeare was writing, he was writing in a heightened style. This wasn't the way that people talked on the street in London. He was doing that on purpose because he knew that there was going to be a company of actors that were going to help this heightened language get across to the audience. So I think reading it on the page, I have a hard time reading it on the page. Almost anybody who works with Shakespeare is going to have like the lexicons, which are like Shakespeare encyclopedias and different versions and different editions to try to work on the text before they even get in rehearsal. No one really, well, some people probably do, like sit down on a Sunday morning with King Lear and just have a cup of tea and read some, which is great. That's wonderful. But I think a lot of people um, really need to do some work in order to have it be accessible And that's why performance is so great, because the actors do the work for you. Katie, you use the word audition, which makes me want to ask you then, have you been auditioning Omaha for the last three years? Uh, Because you've been performing for Nebraska Shakespeare for three years. And in January of this year, you moved here from New Mexico, Mm -hmm. which feels like a long audition of the city to me. So (laughs) this is a long way into asking you, why are you here? Yeah, so I, I'm from Kansas, so Midwestern by pedigree. Is that the right word, use of that word, pedigree? Yeah-ish. We're doing great. Okay. So I went to school in Iowa. I lived in Chicago and Virginia and was in New Mexico for the last five years. And um, I am married to Ezra, who is also an actor. And we, when we came together 10 years ago, when we got married, we decided that we were both going to live our lives as actors, which meant following the work. And it meant forsaking some of those creature comforts, particularly early in our career, that a lot of people come to expect. 
So we lived in Chicago for two years. And the moment we got to Chicago, we started gigging out all over the country. So even though I was in Chicago for two years, I was probably actually there for like 10 months. And that was the first time I worked in Omaha. I worked at the Rose Theater, um, which is a theater for young audiences for the listeners who don't know. Uh, Nebraska Shakespeare, my husband worked here first in 2016. He was on the green for the summer for the summer productions. And I actually got the job, I think I got the job for Hamlet that year because we all went out for drinks. And this, like many businesses, is a relationship business. So I remember very distinctly, and we were all like talking around, and the artistic director at the time was like, what are you doing this fall? And I was like, I mean, I'll probably be like hanging out in Albuquerque, like doing the work. And he was like, huh, you know, we're doing Hamlet. I was like, cool. And then we didn't talk about it. And then auditions came up for Hamlet, and I was like, oh, I should submit. And so I sent in a video audition. And um, and every every time I think when you work for a new company, you're testing each other out, right? Is this company a good fit for me? Am I a good fit for this company? And I had such a great time on tour. I believed in the mission of Nebraska Shakespeare instantly. I thought that the work was really great. And to see students all over the state fall in love with Shakespeare because of the work we were doing, I was on board. And so I came back in 2017, and my husband did as well, came back in 2018. It was 2018, really, when the seed was planted by Miss Sarah Lynn Brown. When uh, she sort of saw the writing on the wall and was like, what would you think about the director of education position? Just hypothetically. And I was like, I have a lot of questions. Like I wanted to know what was in that jurisdiction, what was in that umbrella, and whether or not I was qualified. But what I realized was that what I had been doing in Albuquerque for Duke City Rep, everything that I had been doing there was preparation for the job here on a larger scale. So the transition, and especially because Sarah has shepherded both the position of director of education and the programs so beautifully, the transition has been really easy. And I um, I have a lot of people ask me, like, how do you like Omaha? It's so different from New Mexico. Oh, my gosh, that winter. Like, there's a lot of that going on. <laughs> <laughs> and I get to say, I like this so much more than I thought I was going to. I like being back in the Midwest. Omaha is a really cool city. And I really like the work. That's a gift. That doesn't happen for people very often in any career, but particularly in this one. So I'm really, I'm really jazzed to be here. Ditto. (laughs) (laughs) I've been with a company for 19 years. I started out as um, park security. It's people who like sit in the park and make sure no humans or badgers hurt the set. You get a bat, so that was helpful. <laughs> there was you one really? year. Yeah, w- do they still get a my bat? particular? My very first year that I did it, I only did it one year. Um, there was a badger that had nested under the set, and so they're like, it won't come out. But if it does, here's a bat, and you had a bat and a cell phone. I also was costume run crew, and I got to change the um, ice packs out of somebody's fat suit. So it started really glamorous for me. (laughs) Um, And then 14 years ago, Nebraska Shakespeare started a tour, and I got to be on the ground floor of that. And as that um, program continued to grow and develop, um, I did a lot for that particular program, and um, like Katie said, it was it was something that it was something that these communities was were really craving, and um, if we could get in the schools, show them what we could do and how we could engage with their students, they invited us back year after year. So it just kept getting bigger and bigger, and so uh, I was uh, brought on staff as director of education five years ago, and then um, last year was brought on as interim artistic director. This job is nowhere I ever thought that I would be in this position for this company, especially when I started. And then even when it was offered to me, I was concerned that I wasn't the right person because I had a particular idea of what good leadership was, what it looked like. And a very smart person, Dr. John Hardy, who's going to be directing Hamlet for us this summer, I called him and was like, any advice? And he's like, surround yourself with as many people that you trust and that are smarter than you. And I was like, cool. And so Katie was number one on the list. Her husband, Ezra, who also lives here, a lot of people that um, I, relationships that I had cultivated with my time with Nebraska Shakespeare. And I learned that a leader does more listening than speaking. And that 
is where I feel more at home and being able to um, connect and empathize and show strength through connection. And so like Katie, I'm really excited. Are there any lessons you've drawn from Shakespeare, either the study of Shakespeare or the performance or directing of Shakespeare, that has informed how you lead, how you construct education, how you fulfill your roles? Yes, is the short answer. I think that I did a production of Julius Caesar in early 2016 in Albuquerque, and I played Brutus as a woman. Cassius was a very strong, physically strong and larger than me man. And Julius Caesar was a man and Mark Antony was a man. That was the first time that I really had to take a look at what limitations I had put on myself in the world because I was female. And I had to basically take myself mentally to the mat to go, why do you continue to believe that you are not worthy of all of these big opportunities just because you're a woman? And that sort of changed my entire trajectory. After that, I think this summer will be the 10th male role I've played female at Nebraska Shakespeare or in my career in the last three years. That's insane. It's incredible. And so that's been a big one, taking a look at, as a woman, what am I restricting myself to just because I'm a woman? I think the other big thing that comes to mind, thinking about your question, is um, that you can drop a human into any circumstances and they will figure out what to do. It's one of our greatest powers as humans is that we can we can be manipulative, we can be judgmental, we can be giving and generous, we can be violent and aggressive, we can be all of those things depending on the circumstances. And when we did Julius Caesar here, a lot of people commented on, there's a particular scene, it's called the tent scene, it's between Brutus and Cassius in the latter half of the play. And Brutus and Cassius are in the battlefield, they've started the civil war, they're best friends, they're, they're soul brothers or for us soul sisters, and they are arguing about not being on the same page. And at the end of it, I was playing Cassius and Brittany Proya was playing Brutus. And I think I like hugged her and like kissed her on the side of the head. And it was a level of intimacy after a pretty, pretty bad argument that you don't see with men, which is a whole nother thing. The fact that men in this country are not allowed that sort of affection on a daily basis is like a whole thing to unpack. But we can do that as women. We have the liberty to do that. And if we take it, we have the liberty to do that if we take it. Yeah. Um, I think what I have gained is twofold. One is Harriet Walter says in the beginning of her Brutus and Other Heroines book that once you have played a character, you have let them out of the box and it is impossible to put them back in the box. They are now, they have become a part of you. And I thought that was really a beautiful metaphor. And in the past five to seven years, I have been extraordinarily lucky to play some of Shakespeare's meteor female roles and some male roles as well also direct some really 
um, dynamic productions, uh, on-tour productions, and um, the Juno Swan, Swan staged readings. And so every time I do that, another part of me gets lit up that I didn't know was there, and then it can't go away. So you've got a little bit of Lady Mac, you've got a little bit of Queen Margaret, you've got a little bit of Beatrice, you've got a little bit of Helena, you've got a little bit um, of Rosalind, and and they are all of his voice, and so they all have they all have a similar strength, and they all have uh, their own tragic flaws, and so they're a part of you. So when you go into a board meeting, and you're like, all right, Lady Mac, let's 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 see let's see where you are. <laughs> come um, out to play. Come out. Uh, so you you find. Um, you live in that strength and you, uh, your body starts to feel that. You get that muscle memory of what it is to stand up for something that you really believe in and to fight for something. And then when you're not in that show, your body still remembers how to do that. Shakespeare has been a tremendous gift with that, being able to, to play those roles and take those tools with me into everyday life. I think... You were going to say twofold. Did you do both of the folds or did you just do the first one? I did the first one, but the second one kind of got full. Okay. So the first one or the second one is there's a quote and there's one in Hamlet as well. That's more popular. So I'm not going to use that one. I'm going to use the one from All's Well. Um, <laughs> our remedies oft in ourselves do lie. And there's something about, I mean, Shakespeare says that probably in 36 different ways in 36 different plays. There is something about you already have everything that you need. And so having that uh, uh, guide um, guide me through work as an actor and as a director and as an artistic director, it's all there. I already have everything that I need. I don't need to put on anything. I just need to figure out how to use what I already have to help support the people around me. I was going to say to your first fold, that, <laughs> but I'm glad that you shared the second one with us, uh-huh. that... Um, it's not just the heroes, but it's also the villains that teach us a lot in Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. So last summer, I played the Cardinal in King John. And then I went and saw King John at the Folger mm-hmm. in D.C. And the Cardinal was kind of a throwaway character based on the dude what? who did it. I know. How can you throw away the Cardinal? I did not no, throw did away not. the Cardinal. No. I was in this, like, neck-to-ankle purple gown and, like, velvet and gold chains and pompadour hair and eyes and lips and, like, there to party. And the thing about the Cardinal is that it is, we believe, that Shakespeare was mocking the Catholic institution. Not the faith, but the institution and the idea of money. But from the Cardinal's perspective, and I haven't really shared this with people, certainly not on a radio show, (laughs) that uh, I was building the Cathedral of Notre Dame, which is actually now really sad to think about because of what happened with Notre Dame. But I was building that cathedral and I needed money from the English to do it. Hmm. And I was going to do literally anything to make sure that that was built, that that was my legacy in my position of leadership. And so when you have something of that conviction, then whatever tactics you need to use to get there, you will. So I manipulated the pants off of France, you know, <laughs> like I was ready to go uh, and had such a good time doing mm-hmm. it that, and and the Cardinal was considered, you know, antagonist. The Cardinal was let out of the box too. Mm-hmm. It applies to villains. I'm using very heavy air quotes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to villains as well. Yeah. For a while there, I was feeling as if all of these characters being opened out of their boxes inside you sounded a little schizophrenic. And I started to wonder, like, as actors, are you able to, in moments of necessary calm, actually find out who you are amongst this crowd of people? But then you kept talking and unfolding, as it were, these folds, and it became clear to me, perhaps that the interpretation is more that these characters are all within us. We just recognize them once we've had a chance to play them. I think that's, I think that's a beautiful way to put it, Mm -hmm. to think about like our personal identities as actors are still true. You know, we are the, the age, gender, sexual orientation. We're from a certain place in the world. We speak a certain language. Those things are all true of us as actors and the unfolding. They all, all those characters live within us.
So maybe this is a good time to talk about this all-female season. I want you just to talk about what's happening and, and perhaps what it means and the irony of, in Shakespeare's day, these being all-male casts. Mm-hmm. But I also want to think about it in the context maybe of pushback and this idea about um, maybe minorities, for example, in, in any form, not wanting to see people from a majority play those characters. So certainly in Hollywood, that's been a thing. You know, why should a uh, non-gay person play a gay person? Why should someone who is not trans play a trans person? So why should a woman play a male character? So I'm wondering about that aspect as well. I think, Sarah, I, I... I know that you have so much to share um, on this particular <laughs> because Juno Swans is your is your baby, mm-hmm. right? You you had a personal circumstance mm-hmm. in which that was born. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about what happens when something is built for a homogenous group of people. Like Shakespeare was writing plays for probably all white men mm-hmm. that were all from England, and that they shared those big identities. Like um, then they could become anything. And so we don't live, I mean, there are pockets of the world that are still that homogenous, but not America, not Omaha, Nebraska. We don't live in a homogenous world like that. So we don't have to adhere to that homogeny. But Sarah has better words to talk about that. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's great that you, you know, brought up the fact that he wrote for an all male company. And so I think uh, Juno Swans was born ironically, out of an all-male company. In 2016, Nebraska Shakespeare, Shakespeare on the Green, did an all-male Taming of the Shrew. It was called Original Practices because it harkened back to what uh, the company Shakespeare was writing for. And I got to be the assistant director for that production. And I learned so much. Uh, I was tasked with the gender performance for the men that were playing women. And we were interested in trying to make those performances as true and as honest as possible, not stereotypical representation. So that started my interest in um, this style of gender performance and understanding how gender is fluid and how both genders um, exist inside of us. How do we highlight one in order to help tell a story? Uh, So that was part of that uh, production. And because of that, because of that all-male production, I knew it was my time. That summer was the time to start this all-female program. And it's called Juno Swans because the year earlier, we did All's Well well That Ends Well. I keep wanting to say that because we're doing that this summer. Come and see it. Um, (laughs) As you like it. I played Rosalind and Rosalind gets this beautiful uh, epilogue at the end. And my heart... And my ego wanted that epilogue every night, and especially the final night, because you're closing, and it was a huge audience. My family was there, and it was a beautiful night. It wasn't supposed to rain. It wasn't supposed to rain, and it rained. And we called the show at intermission, and I sobbed like a child. Was so heartbroken over the loss of the end of the performance, but also because Rosalind is the largest role that you can play if you stay within your um, gender assigned at birth for Shakespeare characters. 
And so I was sad about that. And then I kind of got mad about that. And so um, had this little idea in my head of Juno Swans. Juno Swans is a quote from As You Like It. Like Juno Swans, we went coupled and inseparable. It's a line between Rosalind and her cousin Celia. And so it was kind of in the back of my head and this all male thing happened. I was like, mm, I think I think I can make it work. It can be a complimentary production to to this all male production because you're right. It is it is a little polarizing. Anytime you are saying it's going to be all this, you're um, you're excluding people from being a part of that. So uh, I thought this would be a good complimentary thing to do with the all-male production. And so we did it. And the most important thing, the thing that I love the most about Juno Swans is that we discuss it afterwards with the full company, with the audience. Um, and then we partnered with the Blue Barn the year after that and did uh, Richard III. And then the year after that, we did Julius Caesar. And the discussions were the highlight for me. I learned so much about what the actors had all experienced and what the audience was experiencing. And we were experimenting with different things. Richard III, all of the women played Richard at a different point. And Julius Caesar, we did pronoun switches. So all of the characters were women. So what does that do when we kind of embrace our femininity in this very political play? And so I was learning a ton about the different ways that you can do gender performance, the different ways that you can present an all-female production, and how do you still include everyone in the conversation? My assistant director is Katie's husband, Ezra Cologne. We will have men in the room. I want to encourage men in the room. I want to encourage men in the conversation, like Katie was saying before, that is a part of what we do. I was speaking with Ezra during a director's meeting a couple of weeks ago when we were talking, and he said something so eloquently. I'm going to quote Ezra Cologne right now. He said, just because you are a woman doesn't mean you deserve to be in this room. Just because you are a man doesn't mean you don't deserve to be in this room. And I thought that was really interesting, like getting the right artists in the room to be able to create this story. Um, and I think uh, that is what we're doing with All's Well and also going to have a discussion afterwards. And so now we're in a much larger venue and the Blue Barn holds 100 people and we did a couple of shows and, and those were, you know, standing room only, which was wonderful. But now we're going to be doing it for 1,500, 2,000 people. I want to know what they think and I want to have a conversation and have them be able to voice their opinions, positive or questionable. So after every performance, we'll have something we're calling Swan Dives, which will be a post-show discussion with some of the actors to kind of talk about why we did this, what we can gain by it, what we learned from it, um, what we're still challenged by. It also helps us become better at critical discourse. When we did Richard III, we all were wearing jeans and solid colored tops and boots. One of the first questions out the gate <laughs> at the post-show discussion, this guy asked, like, I get it, it's all women, but why are you all dressed like dudes? And you could feel every woman like sit up in her chair a little bit because we were all wearing our own clothing. What he was asking was why we were all wearing pants. Because for him and his perspective, if a woman isn't wearing a skirt, then she's not dressing like a woman. And that, I mean, the amount of discussions that we had within the cast and also like there that day about that very question. It unlocked this huge box for everybody. Um, you went and sat in a talk in a talk back in a post-show discussion just the other day. And uh, the, the question came up of like, uh, why all women on stage and if it was a political statement. Mm -hmm. And we have sort of come to terms with the fact that when you do put all women on stage, it is automatically a political statement, whether you want it to be or not. And that some people are going to be uncomfortable with that and that's a good thing mm -hmm. because we want to create a space in which we can talk about it and and this is a really important point for me create a space in which no one is punished for having an opinion mm -hmm. because we are all allowed to have one yeah and the thing that that i i really dislike particularly in artistic conversations is when we punish people for having an opinion that is different than ours mm -hmm. It's interesting that you say that because I remember like all of us were a little ruffled by that question. And actually, I was really glad that the question came up because this is a person that should be in this room. And it highlighted my own gender bias. I wanted Richard III to be fierce and strong. And so I asked for costume that was gender neutral, but gender neutral tends to 
gear masculine. Yeah, you can't put a man in a skirt without right. it being funny. Yeah, and so unless you're in Scotland. <laughs> yes, uh, thank you, Scotland. Uh, so I mean, like I was doing, I did that for for both of the Juno Swans. Like, yeah, we're jeans and boots, and like it's, you know, it's powerful women. And then that's what brought me to Julius Caesar. I was like, great. How can we be women and still be powerful? And so I asked every woman to wear in the reading what they felt was female power. And so we had, you know, a woman in a power suit and we had, you know, somebody in like a flowy dress and somebody in like jeans and a t-shirt, what they felt um, the most powerful and the most feminine in. Some people wore heels and some people wore flats. And I think that that was really fascinating to be able to understand that even, even what I was doing was, was limiting. You think I'd leave your side, baby? Katie, that earlier you mentioned that you and your husband made deliberate lifestyle choices. I want to ask you both to talk a little bit about where this came from. And I'd like you to share a little bit about your upbringings. What was your childhood like? And then how did you find your way into this extremely lucrative, high-flying career that we call theater performance? Yeah. Um my parents both have science degrees. My my brother is a food scientist. They all still live in Kansas. And I was, they're also all born in January and I'm born in July. And I think that that was just a little writing on the wall for everybody. Like, she's going to be a bit of an odd duck. And I was. I think a lot of artists thrive when there is a little bit of adversity. And adversity shows itself in lots of different ways. So I had a brilliant supportive family who didn't quite know what to do with me and yes and did everything that I wanted to do. So when I was like, I'm going to go do the theater summer camp, they were like, cool. I'm going to go audition for my first play. Great. I am going to be in two plays at once. I'm not going to be home from 3 p.m. to 10 p.m. for my entire sophomore year of high school because I'm going to be in play rehearsal. We will pack you dinner. Like <laughs> they have always been really supportive. My particular adversity was that I went to private school and I was wearing uh, uh, uniforms and everyone was supposed to fall in line and I refused to do that. And thankfully, because I had that structure, I started to push on the boundaries of it and that's where creativity lives. Art loves parameters. We need those boundaries to push against. So that's how they revealed themselves to me. I went to college and I thought, I'll, be, I'll, I'll double major in theater and business. And I, to my credit, took macroeconomics and accounting one and two and did very well, but was so bored. And so I immediately just put all my energy into theater and independent study. And I, um, I'm a three on the Enneagram. If you know what the Enneagram is, it's a, it's a personality test that I talk about all the time. I'm an achiever, which means I love to knock down to-do lists, productivity and efficiency, which means that I'm going to, I'm going to do more shows in a year and I'm going to 
book my schedule from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. I'm going to run myself ragged when I'm fired up about things, which is a lot. I'm gesturing wildly over here. <laughs> so <laughs> as promised, gesturing wildly. So I went to college and again was encouraged. Like there was fuel to the flame. And I found a group of people who were willing to self-produce with me and to go on these adventures. And when I was a junior or senior, I basically just made a decision like, well, I'm going to go be an actor. I don't know how. And I didn't go to a school that's well known for its theater department. There were three people or four people who graduated with a theater degree my year. I didn't go to a conservatory. I didn't go to a school with a name. So I needed to figure all that out for myself. But I, I knew I knew two things. I knew that I had a work ethic that I would just work and work and work and work. And I knew that I learned quickly. And so I learned where to get my headshot done and how to audition and how to audition, you know, how to how to audition well and then um, how to look for contracts and all of that. I also, when I first moved to Chicago right after college, I, I couch surfed. So I spent half of the half of the week on my cousin's couch and half of the week uh, on my ex-boyfriend's parents' couch. Complicated. <laughs> really complicated. But if you do that for seven weeks in a city that you've just moved to with all your stuff in your car, you kind of can do anything. You know, somebody gives you a bed, like your own bedroom, and you're like, oh my God, thank you so much. I have my own bedroom? Really? I have my own shelf in the refrigerator? Oh my gosh. You start to have gratitude for these very small things. And so I, um, from there, I went and worked at the Barter Theater and it was a 15-month contract. I was paid $150 a week with housing and health insurance. And I thought it was the best thing that had ever happened to me. I did 17 productions in 15 months. I was acting from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. And I mean, two and three show days, just, and it's a sprint. And it's where I met my husband and it's where I met my mentors and it changed the trajectory of my life. I was there for three years and then uh, Ezra, had been either in college or in Virginia. And we lived in this this small town of 7,000 people in Virginia. So after that, he was like, I, I, I've been here for all of my 20s. Like, can we go be in a city? And I was like, Chicago. So we did Chicago for a couple of years. And, and then we started to discover that it wasn't enough to just act. We wanted our blood, sweat, and tears to be in the production. We wanted to choose what the production was. We wanted to help build the set. We wanted to be part of the casting process. We wanted to be in the lifeblood of the thing. And that's what took us to New Mexico. We were offered a laboratory to get to choose the season and to get to be a part of it. So the very first show, we, we got married, packed up our Chicago apartment. We got married in Virginia, moved to New Mexico, and started rehearsing a play in 30 days. We did all of it at the same time. And that play, I remember being up out on, in New Mexico, you can work outside because it's New Mexico. So I'm out on the loading dock making fake cabinet doors and whitewashing them until like two in the morning. And then driving Ezra to a 24-hour Walgreens because he stepped on a nail and needed a tetanus shot. (laughs) And being... So happy. <laughs> so then when this this opportunity with Nebraska Shakespeare came of being able to do that on a larger scale, like the 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 scale of Nebraska Shakespeare is insane. To be in the park with 2,500 people, it's crazy. Mm. It's beautiful. And both Ezra and I were like, when this opportunity came up, we were like, let's do it. That was great. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think, um, I was always troubled that I never had like the moment that I was called to this career. I always thought that it was something that, um, everyone had a really great story about and I just never really had anything like that. It was something that I was good at. It was something that helped me make friends when I was in high school and middle school. Um, and even when I went to college, I was undeclared. It was theater or biology. Um, really? Mm-hmm. Biology? Biology. Like pre-med biology? No, I don't know what I was going to do with like it. Like animals, probably. Probably. Okay. I really liked chemistry. I liked like the... the then why biology? I don't... I, <laughs> Maybe obviously that was the problem. Obviously, it didn't work out. But it didn't work out. We hit imaginary <laughs> numbers, and I was done. There was math, way too much math involved. Um, but theater was always something that I was 
good at and um, something that I could learn from, but it was I was very product based. It was just the way that I was the way that I got my training, which means you you work towards the production. You work towards the right answers in the production. Like you get notes from the director, you fix those notes, you get it right, and then you are successful and people clap for you and you bow and you go home. So it was fine. And I was actually making a living in a city that it was difficult to do that in. And so I felt like I had to have been doing something right. Um, but I think I was I didn't have that oh, this is why people do this moment. And now I've had a ton of them. I have them all the time. I text them to Katie all the time. I want to do this for the rest of my life. (laughs) Um, So I'm having these moments all the time, which I think means I'm on the right path now. Um, But it was... It was Juno Swans, the production that we did of Taming of the Shrew. And it was our post-show discussion. The audience was not huge. The audience was mostly the males that were in the all-male production had come to support us. And then there was a smattering of other people. Um, but that, what a wonderful audience. They knew the play really well. We had a great discussion. And there was um, a moment about the final monologue where Kate basically is broken. And it's a comedy. And sometimes that's played for laughs. And it can't be. It's just so awful to see what happens to this woman. And the woman, Brittany Proya, she gets another shout out, who was playing Kate. Um, Somebody asked her what that was like speaking that monologue. Now, you know, having this be an all-female production. And she was talking about, we all sat like kind of in a semicircle behind her. And so she talked about having the support of all of these women. And every time she wanted to stop speaking these words, she could feel us all behind her. And that gave her the strength to keep going. And then the discussion turned and all of the women started talking about what this thing that was really thrown together, what it was doing for these women. And the conversations that I had with them afterwards and the emails that they sent me afterwards, I was like, oh, this is it. This is it. This is why I was lost as a performer because it wasn't what I was meant to do. I was meant to provide these opportunities for women and men in order to tell these stories and in order to have conversation about them to better the world, to change the world. And so now the aha moments are happening all of the time because of that of that moment. I was gonna ask you maybe to share with the audience why Nebraska listeners need to come and experience Shakespeare this year? Oh, this summer, our 33rd season is a very, very exciting season because Shakespeare on the Green is going to be an event. We have always had exceptional productions on stage and that will hold true. But now the entire park is going to be filled with art and with energy that um, is unprecedented in our 33 years. Uh, We are very excited to be having the Maymo Art Gallery that will be on the green the entire three-week run. We are having local performers live music before every single show. We are going to have theme nights. We're going to have a a ladies' night, a family night, um, an educator night. We'll be doing a late-night version of Hamlet the swan dives after the um, after the productions of All's Well That Ends Well. So we're really looking to excite and engage our audiences from the minute they walk into the park through the very end of the show and have all of the productions be extremely accessible. We're going to have pre-show performances where we're going to offer a bridge to the audience and let them know what these plays are all about. Most people know Hamlet, but maybe we can give them a little bit of an insight of something to look for or something else that they can glean from this play that they may know so well. And a lot of people don't know All's Well That Ends Well. And so how do we help them understand and um, give them the confidence walking into this show that they know what's happening and that they can just sit back, relax, and really enjoy the play? When I think about Shakespeare writing for his audience in Elizabethan England, people were working 12-hour days. The theater was outside, and the ground lean section was where they stood and were drinking and were eating and were being pickpocketed and everything was happening. It was a rowdy bunch. Um, it is it is um, hypothesized that the closest environment we have to that now is not a theater, but a bar. 
that's more like what Shakespeare was performing for. And, you know, they would throw things and they would be disinterested. And and the, the Globe had to move like 2,000 tickets a week. So they were doing four and five and six different plays a week. But when you think about the circumstances of the, the people, they were working these 12-hour days. The plague was still a thing, you know, so they had lost family members and they were poor and they were hungry. And there was a, a moral and religious civil war that was basically like – you never knew if you were safe or not. And amidst all of that, these very poor, probably sick people would roll up into the globe at two in the afternoon and pay a shilling to see Hamlet and All's Well That Ends Well and As You Like It and be transported for three to four hours. Ours will just be two hours. And they needed that. And I think about this point of of time in our history and in our culture. We need that too. We need to come together in a room or in a gigantic field and like have a beer and eat some pizza and sit on a blanket with your dog and your kid and disappear inside of this crowd and this story for two hours and walk away with the potential of being a little bit changed. I think that that's, we all need a little more of that. too good to be true Can't take my eyes off of you You'd be like heaven to touch I want to hold you so much I've been in conversation with Nebraska Shakespeare's Sarah Lynn Brown, Interim Artistic Director and Katie Becker-Cologne, Director of Education. Thank you both so much for being on the show. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Can't take my eyes off of you Pardon the way that I stare Did you have an, another question that you wanted to ask? Is there a question you wanted? <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>